I'm Kier from In Defense Of, a fandom inclusion and community podcast that's part of the Gun and Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on this network are individually owned, and the opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other really interesting geeky shows at gunandgeeknetwork.com. All right, so before we get started, I want to give a special shout out, SP. Uh, I thought about you this week, lots. Did you know that? I, I, I value what you say. I think about you all the time, and I take action sometimes when I think about you. So, uh, do you remember last week you made, you made a specific request for me? Do you remember what the request was? You specifically requested <laughs> something. I, I don't know. What was that? A, a, a sign that you're going to start? <laughs> a sign that I'm going to start. No, let, let me, let's just visit down memory lane. Okay, let's do it. Uh, we're also happy to say that SP is here this week. Hey, SP. Hey, Steven. You know, I'm just jazzing out to the intro music thinking we need a live band for this. We do. I think we do. I do have a live band. You didn't know that? Literally, they come in every single Monday. You need to set up a camera on them because <laughs> I want to jam out with them. So, yeah. I, I right. absolutely set up a, a camera. So do, do you want to see the live band? Uh, I'm afraid to see the live band because I don't believe you right All now. Right. Go ahead. Hit it. This is the official gunageek.com show. Each week we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show. Steven. Chris. And SP. Welcome to an all new episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. We have a live band here. It's the GunnaGeek.com show house band. Thank you very much for uh, joining me again in the studio this Monday, house band. Uh, SP and Chris are here. Uh, let's just go ahead and turn it over to whoever wants to react to the house band first. Who would like to go ahead and react first? So. True story, I've been watching The Clone Wars for the first time on Disney+, Plus, so I'm used to seeing a lot of the same face around. What I'm not used to seeing is a lot of rock band musical instruments, so I, I'm picturing <laughs> Clone Wars with rock band instruments right now. It's the house rock band is what <laughs> you enough. have going there. I, I don't know. It looked like authentic musical instruments. Uh, for the audio listener, there was a very good-looking uh, GundaGeek.com show uh, house band on screen there for this intro this time. It was a special intro. And if you want to check that out, you can head on over to GundaGeek.com slash 32. Actually, GundaGeek.com slash show is probably the best. And look up episode 321, and you'll go ahead and see that there uh, again fantastic looking house band uh i ha have to say i i struggled struggled to keep my focus on the screen when i got them right beside me it's it's hard hard sometimes it was me three times uh so we're gonna go ahead though and get into the news but before we do that we should follow up on last week's hail show news point which was or tail end news point, uh, which was the fact that they renamed the Harley Quinn movie and it was a complete success. Apparently just box office blew up. The rename seemed to work. It was a great weekend for the uh, Birds of Prey movie. And uh, I don't have a Birds of Prey shirt, but I did have a Suicide Squad shirt. So I made sure to wear that today as well, just in honor of saying renaming. Apparently that's all it took to make that movie a success. It'll probably get an Academy Award right now. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie made the most money out of any video game adaptation of all time for opening weekend. What world do we live in? Did you end up seeing it this weekend? I wanted to. I missed out because I was running some errands Friday after work. And by the time I got back in town, I'd missed the showing I wanted to see. And I didn't care enough to hang out for another hour and a half for the next showing. You know why he didn't see it? Why? Because he no longer has movie pass because it no longer exists. But I have a regal <laughs> movie pass. Then I don't understand why you didn't stick around and see it. Because I had video games and other things to do instead of waiting until two for the next showing. I'll go on Friday. <laughs> and then eventually I'll see Harley Quinn colon birds of prey or whatever they're calling it. It might be a different name by then. We don't know. <laughs> 
Harley Quinn, Colin, watch our movie. We need money really bad. Birds of prey. Absolutely. But let's go ahead and move on to the news. Who is so excited for the first news point that we've got here, which I, oh, it just feels so good to deliver this news point. This is one that has been a long time coming, and there have been many, many, many of us who have been talking about this, but now there's numbers. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, just before Steven starts this, let's remind everyone he's the resident Apple hater on the show. <laughs> Steven is the resident Apple hater. It is a title that he has worked hard to earn over all of these years. And I just don't want you to forget that before he starts. And if, if you don't agree, just email JS at gonna and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, malware bites, which if you're not familiar, is a very high profile anti-malware company. Malware bites did produce their annual state of malware report. And guess what? There was a large increase detected in Mac well malware on a year-over-year -year basis. How much was this increase? It was 400%. When you tally up the threat detection, essentially the adware side of the malware beat the Windows side for total malware uh, infections over the year. And this was quite, I think this is the first time that they've, they've actually had this number where Apple has beat out uh, Windows in some form of malware. And this was specifically in the adware or the quote borderline adware category, essentially unwanted programs that uh, do produce this level of adware. And, and this was a big thing because again, big, uh, big increase, number one, Number two, finally beat Windows in this side of things. Now, the other, the true, dirty, the, the bad, bad, bad stuff is still going strong on the Windows side of things. But this was an area of malware that finally had Mac beat out Windows as far as total infections over the course of the year. Now, the reason I want to bring this, number one, obviously, I want to mention it for the reasons that Chris mentioned. But number two, the other reason that I want to is because this is a really good, true, concrete data point for people who do think that Macs are safe because of the old days. A lot of tech specialists have, have said that the reason Macs used to be, quote, safe was because it wasn't worth people spending the time to infect a small user base. They wanted to go after the big thing. But the this report summarizes that the fact that Macs are so, so prevalent that that's why things have really taken off and continue to increase year over year with Mac malware, because now it is worth going after to uh, try to create Viri and other things for the Mac. And so it, it is a good indication that if you really think that you're kind of safe on Mac, you really should think again. So the question I would have for Mac OS users, which I am not one, what kind of built-in protections are there in macOS? I know Microsoft, for instance, has Windows Defender and stuff like that. And arguably, when it first started, pretty terrible. But at today's day and age, you could theoretically get away with just Windows Defender. I wouldn't necessarily suggest it, but you'd be relatively safe with a combination of the Windows Defender and the Windows antivirus that's cooked into it, plus all the malware detection. So I'm curious, Mac users out there, I know we've probably got some in the chat room or out there in the Twitterverse or whatnot. Let us know if there's any baked-in protections in macOS. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I know why that there has been an increase in the malware in the macOS in the past year. That is because until middle of last year, those working on MacBooks had to deal with the butterfly scissors keyboard which, you know, is, is not any good at all. So any malware developer worth their salt is not going to want to use that keyboard. So when they came out with the redesign in the middle of last year, then all of a sudden, all these developers for malware were like, hey, now we can develop malware again. These keyboards are usable. We can make the Mac OS torturous again because the 
it, it, the, the issue with the keyboard is gone. That that seems logical, and it's really hard for me to fault that logic. Chris, would you like to respond to that? I expected a more hard-hitting anti-Apple stance from our resident Apple hater, one Stephen John Drew. You know, sometimes in life, you're given lemons, and that's a Mac. Uh, there's nothing else. So, Stephen, I know you like to live dangerously. Does this change all your plans? Are you moving to a Mac OS only environment? So you're like, I'm living on the edge. You thought the rebel was bad. Now you've got Steven the rebel who rebels with his technology choices. This is Steven's transition to an all Apple world, everyone. Prepare yourselves. This is going to be a new segment on the gunnageek.com show as Steven transitions to an all Apple user. I'm just going to go ahead and say, you know me well. You know me well, and you literally just said the reason why I cannot switch to Mac. You literally said that I like to live... You said I like to live on the edge, and edge is part of Windows 10. So that's why I have to stay with Windows 10. When's the last time you used Microsoft Edge? Uh, Three weeks ago? I called BS. I did. When did you purposely (laughs) use Windows Microsoft Edge versus accidentally click on it? Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, uh, it's worth checking out. If you go to gunnageek.com and check out the article link that we've got there. It again, it highlights that the more critical categories definitely still were were more apparent uh, on Windows side of things. I think that is a worthwhile note. But this increase here really goes to show how much and how rapidly the Mac malware situation is changing. And you should really be aware of that if you are using a Mac and don't have antivirus. You, you needed more alliteration. It should be the Mac malware malady. I, I I got nothing to say to that. Let's go ahead and move on to SP's news point there. And SP, is there any fancy title that you would like to give your news point to top that? Yes. The fancy title will be We Keep Missing Steven's House with Satellites. Damn it. That's a disappointment, I, tr- I think, to most of the world. I know. Especially Apple. We tried in the last couple of months, a couple of times, and uh, we failed. And we failed once again because DirecTV's defunct Spaceway One is safe as it reaches a high graveyard orbit in one piece. Those long-term watchers and listeners of Gonna Geek are like, what? I haven't heard about this. That's because I haven't said anything about this. But what happened was DirecTV had an aging satellite called Spaceway One. It was in the geo belt. And... It was running out of battery and it had too much fuel. They were trying to decommission it, but they didn't know if they were going to make it in time. So here's what happened. I got this from a spacenews.com article that was published on February 14th by Caleb Henry. And he said that DirecTV Spaceway One satellite has been retired to a graveyard orbit that is 500 kilometers above the geostationary arc, eliminating the risk of the malfunctioning satellite exploding. Yes, what I said, exploding in an orbit populated by active satellites. Now, ground-based observations from ExoAnalytic Solutions Network of Space Surveillance Telescopes show that Spaceway One has been moved out of harm's way and deactivated. DirecTV, which was using Spaceway One as a backup satellite for television broadcast services, notified the U.S. Federal Communications Commission last month that the satellite could explode if it wasn't moved to a graveyard orbit and shut down by February 25th. This is because the Boeing-built 702 series satellite has been relying exclusively on power generated by its solar arrays after an unexplained anomaly caused significant and irreversible damage to its battery back in December. Now, the risk of explosion was minimal, as long as the battery remained powered down, but operating on direct solar power would no longer be possible starting in late February when several weeks of eclipses in Space One's geostationary orbit would require the satellite to periodically pass through the shadow and thus lose control. DirecTV originally planned to leave Spaceway One at 300 kilometers above the geostationary arc, a common disposal orbit for retired satellites, but decided later to increase that altitude to 500 kilometers possibly to consume or vent more fuel. The company originally told the FCC it would not have time to deplete all the Spaceway 1's approximately 73 kilograms 
of remaining bipropellant because of the urgency of the satellite's battery issue. So guys, here's what happened. The battery ran out. Uh, they couldn't use it anymore. They risked the battery exploding if they use it. So they were only operating on a solar panel. They were on a time clock. They had to get everything done by February 25th. They petitioned the FCC to move the satellite even uh, in advance of, of their normal window because of this. They moved the satellite, but it still has propellant on board. One of the problems with that is it could repressurize the propellant tank and explode. So there's still a chance that this thing could explode, but at least it's not in the geostationary belt. It is 500 kilometers above that. So even if it does explode, odds are the shrapnel won't be headed towards the geostationary belt and hit any one of the other really pivotal communication satellites up there. So that's what the issue was. And if it did explode, I would expect that it would just careen straight down to Stephen's house. And it, it didn't do that, but there's still a chance. I was going to say there's propellant left. So when is NASA <laughs> going to redirect it to Stephen's house? Because Stephen wanted free direct TV. And this is the best way to get free direct TV <laughs> with the satellite. It's a good question. Unfortunately, it's just not going to happen. And that is because the satellite is now unstable. It There's no way to command it, power it up or anything. They shut it down and it is currently spinning and so it is out of, out of control. My guess is, is when Suncast does his secret commute back from the secret moon or Mars base, he might just happen to get a little fender bender in space. And nope, the satellite comes to Steven's backyard for free TV satellites. It's not rubbing, it's racing. There you go. Okay, so you said that uh, they notified the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, right? That's what you said? And that's correct, because they control the geostationary belt for the world, I guess. Okay, but I'm also assuming that this satellite was used for direct TV's customer service communications, and the failure is why... DirecTV's customer service sucks. Is that correct? No, no, no. That goes straight out into space. They don't even redirect <laughs> oh, it. Oh, fair after. enough. Okay, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. <laughs> this was a backup satellite that had been using for some time and just didn't need any more, so they decommissioned it. Yeah. Uh, so, backup satellites. Um, I, I actually know there's a, a big space debris problem. I know this. You mentioned it a few times. When there is a primary satellite set up like this, is it typically one backup? Is it two? Like what, what's sort of the protocol or the, the norm? Well, let's take the GPS constellation, for example. So in order to get good GPS coordinates, you need four visible satellites with good frequency and time difference of arrival information. And that's what gives your position here on Earth. You need four. Usually you have 12 good operational satellites within your view anywhere on earth so it's a good three to one ratio for gps but for communications birds it is a simple law of physics of where are you able to cover the area of the earth that you want to cover tedris is another example you could use three of those it's a geostationary communication satellite that nasa uses to communicate to the international space station and any astronaut launches that occur and you could do that with three, but they have four. So in that case, it's just an extra one versus a three to one ratio. So it really just depends on the expense of the satellite, where it is and what its job primarily is. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to our next news point here, which is all about Suncast. I mean, Starcraft. What? Yes, we are going to talk about a game that had long, long been rumored and anticipated. In order to do so, StarCraft Ghost, we need to go back to when it was first announced when a young Chris Farrell was a senior in high school in September 2002 when Blizzard announced StarCraft Ghost was being developed by Nihilistic Software for the GameCube, the Xbox, and the PlayStation 2. I remember reading the reveals and being like, oh, this is really going to be cool. It's a shooter game where you get to be one of the ghost characters from the Star StarCraft real-time simulation game. This is awesome. I couldn't wait to have it happen. They kept teasing it forever and ever. And then finally, March 2006 comes around. The game goes on, quote, indefinite hold, end quote, while they investigated the possibilities of porting it to the seventh generation video game consoles. That's your Xbox 360, PS3, 
era consoles. Subsequent public statements from the company stated that they weren't sure what was going on with it. And then finally, in 2014, they officially canceled StarCraft Ghost. So after 12 years of anticipation, the game was gone. We had no idea what was going to come of it. And there had only been a few people that had a chance to play it, but it had been widely anticipated. In fact, it won Wired News' annual Vaporware Awards back in 2005. Why do I mention this? Because, guys, it's 2020, and we had new gameplay footage of StarCraft Ghost and screenshots that hit the internet this week. A game that was promised in 2002 that had tons (laughs) of hype that everyone wanted to play that was then canceled in 2012, or excuse me, 2014. We got screenshots. We got to see online gameplay. Blizzard issued takedown notices on videos put up on YouTube of (laughs) this new gameplay footage. uh, Polygon had an article that said a Twitter user by the name of Andrew Borman posted some screenshots on Twitter of StarCraft Ghost, but quickly pointed out he had nothing to do with this leak, but these screens were posted anonymously in some Xbox groups he was a member of. Someone else seems to have access, or claims to have access rather, to a leaked Xbox build and uploaded more than just screenshots. A YouTube user by the name of Lears Menzies uploaded a 13-minute video of gameplay from the third mission of StarCraft Ghost. That's, this was uploaded early Sunday morning in the United States. It showed off some of the basic shooting and jumping gameplay within the games. Now, editorial aside here, when you go and look at this footage, it looks like a lot of generic standard shooter action-adventure games in the early 2000s. It's nothing special. doesn't really seem to have that Blizzard polish. But remember, the game was never officially released. This is probably why it wasn't released, because as cool as it might have been to play a ghost in a shooter, it really wasn't that great. Uh, Polygon continued and said there was a Twitter user by the name of Days After Rodeo who conta- contacted them, excuse me, with a link to what they claim is the build of StarCraft Ghost that people are downloading. This Twitter user explained the leaked build is from a dev kit and shared a screenshot of the dev kit with StarCraft Ghost on it. So this is officially out in the wild. There is no way to legitimately acquire this. So if you go and try and find it on your own, beware you could be prosecuted potentially. I don't know what the legality and the laws are of it. But if you were someone like me who back in 2002 was super excited, this is 18 years ago, we're super excited about the pending StarCraft Ghost release, we can start actually seeing gameplay footage and screenshots from the game that we never got that then became a running gag because it took 12 years for them to cancel it. This is hilarious to me. I want to see more. And part of me almost wishes the Blizzard goes, Ah, the hell with it. We're going to finish the game now after this many years of delay because, hey, it happened to Duke Nukem Forever. Maybe it can happen to StarCraft Ghost. This is incredible. And the fact that they're doing takedowns um, and le- like, let's assume that what people are showing right now, video wise and stuff is actually le- legitimate. Can you imagine having sat on that for how many years? I wonder how this actually came about. My guess is this dev kit was out there in the wild and someone picked it up to add to their collection or something like that because there are video game collectors who try and obtain dev kits of the devices they like because then they have the ability to play either unreleased games or region unlocked games, things like that more easily. So my guess is this is a matter of it's a dev kit that came up for auction or someone bought somewhere, spun it up and went, Starcraft Ghost. What the hell? And then started playing it and then took that copy, was able to make a copy of it and put it online so that others could experience it for themselves. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I wonder what other games might be floating around there like this. I played the original Combat Evolve, Halo Combat Evolve. It can't be that much different in terms of graphics. Well, it's from the same generation. StarCraft Ghost was 2002, and I want to say Halo was 2001 is when it came out. I can't remember. It was a launch title for the Xbox. I want to say that was November 2001. Really? Because I thought it was late 2000s, because didn't they just do the 10th anniversary a couple years ago? I don't know. We could double check that. But Halo was a launch title, and it was either 2000 or 2001, I think it came out, somewhere around there. So this was slated to be after that, and it was a very... Yeah, it was a very surprising thing that Blizzard was saying, hey, we're going to make this game for consoles because predominantly Blizzard games had been on PCs. They made a port of 
StarCraft 64 for the Nintendo 64, and I think they put Diablo out on the PlayStation, and they weren't very good. So when everyone heard, oh, Blizzard has licensed out some content to make a console game, everyone went, what? What? But everyone loves StarCraft. So there was a lot of buzz and excitement for it, and I'm just tickled by the fact that a game I never thought I'd see anything of, 18 years later, I'm finally seeing. And it just, honestly, it takes me back to being a senior in high school with my buddies talking about, oh my God, did you see this new StarCraft game? Can I just say that there's probably a whole generation of gamers out there that are going to see the headline StarCraft and go, oh, what a Minecraft ripoff. What do you want to bet? (laughs) Well, I mean, with StarCraft 2 having come out in recent years, that is possible, but less likely, I suppose. And I might have spoken out of turn the video that was taken down. It says it was removed by the user. So maybe it wasn't Blizzard that got it. I don't know. Well, I can't wait to see what else comes from this because this has the writing all on the wall that uh, there's going to be more to come and more leaks and more behind the scenes information. Well, I mean, we do have the glitchy dev build out there, so who knows what will come out of that. Fair enough. Before we move on to our featured segment, I just wanted to quickly note on something that you should definitely tweet Chris Farrell about because I know he wants to talk about this. And uh, it's the fact that the uh, Galaxy Z Flip durability test uh, is questionable. Chris, you found an interesting article, didn't you? I did. So there's a YouTuber I follow. His name is Zach. He runs a channel called Jerry Rig Everything, where he is predominantly known for taking cell phones, stress testing them, taking his Moe's picks to them to figure out how weak a screen is or whatnot. So he took his Moe's picks to the Galaxy Z Flip screen, which has been quoted to have some kind of ultra thin glass in it. And it scratched just as easily and at the same level as the uh, Moto Razor that has an all plastic screen. So there's a lot of controversy going on to say, Hey, Samsung, what the hell does it mean that this is an ultra thin glass display when it scratches as easily as the Motorola Razor plastic display? So we'll probably see more coming soon. But yeah, the the screen is fragile on a foldable phone. Go figure. Yeah, these foldable foldable (laughs) phones. It's going to be interesting to follow, especially when they're all abandoned uh, with the display soon, because I don't know. I, I don't. I struggle to see this succeeding with the whole the whole glass thing. We've had problem left, right, and center with all of them. We know it succeeds because Kirk in the original series uses a flip communicator, so you know it works. <laughs> but, but we already had that in the original Motorola Razor. That's true. There was no display. <laughs> I assume that in the original series, they just didn't show us, but it was an actual display that oh. flipped open. I'm I'm confident that it exists. <laughs> what was it? Star Trek 4 or 5, whichever one they come back in time. Scotty did give them the formula for transparent aluminum, so I just want to know Where's my transparent aluminum display on my cell phone? Transparent aluminum exists now, by the way. Where is my transparent aluminum display? And I heard you're going to tell us all about that in SP Space Symposium. How's that for setting you up for failure, SP? Well, you know, that's a, it's a good segue, actually, because I had some difficulty putting together my space symposium today because I am on an aging iPhone and I can't get a new one because there's a shortage of iPhones because of the coronavirus. Everyone drinking that crappy beer. <laughs> well, coronavirus is real. It's got a high mortality rate and I uh, do not uh, envy those that have it. But yes, that is true. Uh, that coronavirus is starting to limit some products that are being made in China. So just keep that in mind as you start to look for refreshing some items into the summer. I'm glad you clarified what you were saying was true after Chris said that it came from Corona beer. I'm glad you clarified that. (laughs) I try. I, I I wish I could say I was joking with that line, but there were legitimate stories going around in Google trends of people asking, does the coronavirus come from Corona beer? So there were legitimately people that were asking that, not in a facetious way. That's a good point. And that's why outlets like NBC News are starting to use the moniker for it instead of coronavirus. The uh, what was it? COVID-19, I believe it's called. So, yeah, it's a it's a mistake that people can make anyway. uh, For the first time in almost a year. I have an SP Space Symposium and I kind of wish I had waited 
one space symposium to take the year off because that would have been more representative of what I'm going to cover because after this, it's a, like a three year break in space development before I cover another mission. But what we're going to be covering today is a Soviet mission that flew in 1967. It was part of the Venera series. It was Venera four, and it was the first spacecraft to enter another planet's atmosphere. Guys, this is pretty exciting. When I giggity giggity, yeah. When I started delving into this one, this was like cool. Now remember, Soviet Union had their share of successes along the way, and it wasn't until recently that we've been covering some U.S. missions that were first. The U.S. was not first to enter a probe into the atmosphere of Venus. That was the Soviet Union. So what happened here is in 1967, the Soviets designed the series of probes called Venera. It actually started before 67, but in 67, they, they finally started launching uh, the successful versions. It started, I believe, in 1961 with Venera 1, and then Venera 2 was launched in 1963, I believe, and then Venera 3 in 1963 as well, and then, or 65, <clears throat> and then Venera 4 was in 1967. Venera 1 was not successful. Imagine that. It ceased operations before it got to Venus. Venera 2 also ran into the same issue. Venera 3, you know, we've joked a lot in the past about us bombing Mars recently, but the Venera 3 was the first bombing mission that we had against another planet because, yeah, it crash landed on Venus or bombed Venus. So there you go. But Venera 4 actually functioned as well as it could. It was actually designed to study the upper atmosphere. They had hoped that it would actually get to the surface of the planet. It did not, or it did, but it didn't operate by the time it got down there. It got down to 15 miles above the surface of the planet and it was crushed and it could not send any more information effectively ended the mission. However, in the process of going down through the atmosphere, it got a ton of scientific discoveries. It came back with the actual pressure for the atmosphere, which was a lot more than we thought it was going to be. We thought it would, the pressure was going to be like 75 atmospheres by the time it got down to the surface. It was much, much more than that. The temperatures were skyrocketing high and the gases were not what we expected them to be. We expected a tropical atmosphere and unfortunately it was a more of a, what's the planet that Darth Vader was created on? What's that planet? Mustafar. Mustafar. It's more like Mustafar with clouds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're dealing with here, except for a lot more pressure and a lot more heat. So what happened is it was launched on June 12th, 1967 by the Soviet Union. I don't exactly know what the control site was. Remember, the Soviets weren't exactly a fountain of information back then. True. It, it had a dry mass of 1,106 kilograms, or if you do conversion to English units, it's 2,438 pounds or about half the weight of a new Tesla Cybertruck. This is the new one we're going with. <laughs> nice. It was 3.5 meters high. It had a diameter of one meter. And then it had an actual spacecraft, a space bus to get the spacecraft to Venus. And then it had a drop ship, which was just a sphere that was meant to uh, combat the temperature and the pressure. It was uh, meant to sense the upper atmosphere. It's... Uh, payload consisted of some measurement tools. It had two thermometers, a barometer, a radio altimeter, and an atmospheric density gauge. It had 11 gas analyzers and two radio transmitters, which operated in the DM waveband. Now, the main bus, which carried the spacecraft over and had a scientific mission up until the time that the capsule dropped, had a magnetometer 
cosmic ray detectors, hydrogen and oxygen indicators, and a charged particle trap. So it was sensing the cosmic rays on the way over. And also we were able to determine that the magnetic field of Venus is one one thousandth that of Earth. And its atmosphere ultimately contained no oxygen or water vapor. So you said it had a gas analyzer in it? 11 different gas analyzers, yes. Think in terms of the spectrometers that you used in high school chemistry. I was just thinking I I could really use one of those because I put a multipurpose sensor in my bathroom. And so like for humidity, it'll automatically turn on the bathroom fan and there's a light sensor. But the problem is when someone comes in to use it, there's no automation for when it's a stink fan. So uh, I need a gas analyzer. Why don't you just put an automated switch for when they come in that the fan automatically goes on? Because then it's going to take heat when it doesn't need to be on. Because what if what if it's not that one, SP? What if it's the other function? Always use the fan when you go into a fan in bathroom. <laughs> yes, please. Fair enough. Fair enough. <clears throat> now, you're asking, how did they prepare? How did the Soviets prepare this probe to go down in the atmosphere? Well, they had three tries before. They were on successful, including the one that bombed. So they were like, okay, we need to actually get ready to do this. So instead of a liquid based cooling design they went with a simpler and more reliable gas system to cool the probe as it dropped through the atmosphere now the durability of the capsule was checked by exposing it to high temperatures pressures and accelerations using three unique testing installations inside the soviet union the heat resistance was checked in a high temperature vacuum system which emulated the upper layers of the atmosphere the capsule was also pressurized to a hundred atmospheres Remember, the surface pressure on Venus was thought to be about 75, 72 atmospheres. Finally, it was subjected to accelerations up to 450 gravities in a centrifuge. Now, the centrifuge test did cause cracking of some electrical components and cable brackets, and they were all replaced shortly before launch. One could say that maybe some of these replacements failed, and that is why the probe failed at the altitude it did. Now, the timing for the launch was rather tight, so they would rather not miss this launch window as they were doing the Holman transfer to go over to Venus. So they were really rushed when they were trying to put this together as well. And to be quite honest, I think it was a success for them to do this. Remember, this is 1967. We hadn't even gotten to the moon yet, and we're starting to sense the atmosphere places like Venus. Now, Of note, I thought this was interesting, that the designers of the spacecraft thought that they would land in water. Remember, back in the day, we thought that Venus was just this tropical paradise, right? So they thought they would land in water, the probe would sink, and the data would ultimately be lost. But in case of a water landing, the capsule was designed with this lock, which was made out of sugar. Yes, the same sugar that you use in your house It was meant to dissolve in liquid water and then release the transmitter antennas so they could get the last bit of data out because the data transfer was so slow back then. I mean, we we think we had issues with our BOD modems back in the 80s. This was even less than that. And it had to travel over a long period of time. They only had one shot at it. So they wanted to do this. Uh, So it was a little bit misguided. There's no water on the surface of Venus and I'm pretty sure that the pressure and temperature pretty much toasted that sugar lock <laughs> and the antennas probably deployed uh, way before it was destroyed. Can you imagine being the people that thought of that and they put all of this engineering into that locking mechanism and then they get the data and they're like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Oopsie. <laughs> they got to take a lot of sugar test things home though hey kids lick this (laughs) so the parachute was designed so it could resist temperatures up to 450 degrees celsius i think it would have failed before it got to the surface and the capsule also had a rechargeable battery that was sufficient for a hundred minutes worth of measurements and transmitter systems but To avoid it being discharged, it was actually recharged in orbit as it was going in orbit around the sun, the heliocentric orbit, as it was going in between Earth and Venus. Now, the probe 
activated for about 94 minutes. So in another six minutes, it would have been at the limit of the battery anyway. But I think that is kind of a success. It worked for 94 minutes out of the 100. Usually they over-design it, so it would have probably worked for a little bit more had it not been crushed to death. So the probe lasted a total of 94 minutes in the atmosphere, but it lasted 128 days from launch to when it was crushed in the Venusian atmosphere, which, by the way, was October 18th, 1967. This is our first attempt at actually receiving data from another planet in the atmosphere, guys. This is pretty exciting stuff. So which soundstage did they uh, do this all on? Because we've never sent anything to actually space. Your rock band soundstage. <laughs> well played. Fair enough. Well played. Fair enough. Um, this is cool because I never really thought about the first um, sort of big data gathering like this. And the, the way that they anticipated the water and, and they're not being water really frames what it must have been like during those early days. Like it's such a, such a drastic difference right now. It's so easy to take for granted the things that we know. We're still finding out things, by the way, just in the last 10 years, we sent a probe to Mercury. I was really excited to talk about this in the future, which will be several months or years from now on the guineageek.com show. But a, if you want to go in and look into it, the probe that we sent to Mercury it basically redefined how we thought Mercury was created. And we thought that Mercury was created as close as it is to the sun. Not so. There is measurements that we have taken from the planet that indicate that it was created out, out further by Venus or Earth or Mars. And then it eventually went in there. So how it got there, nobody knows. Some sort of cataclysmic collision, like the one that Earth created the moon with. I, I'm not sure, but it ultimately uh, the measurements that we are getting from probes that we are sending out today are teaching us something new. Like the Pluto probe that we sent out a few years ago, that gave us new information about Pluto and MU69, where life possibly began. We're, we're talking about planets, SB. So no, no room for Pluto here. Neil deGrasse Tyson <laughs> got to you, didn't he? <laughs> I was gonna make a joke about out of the eight planets, but you just you just gave me that joke. You you set me up perfect. Uh, okay, so let me ask you this, Mister Pioneer. Did we did we ever get that final data dump that they were hoping for? Was that was there a way to get get it at the end, or like was there? It the was data continually was sending data as it went down, and we were receiving that data throughout all of the Earth's. Uh, sites at that point in time the deep space radio telescopes that we could point at venus at that point in time so yeah we got data all the way up to the point where it stopped sending data which was 15 miles above the planet surface chris anything that you want to comment on here i'm fascinated just fascinated with what though that's the question <laughs> everything and accidentally putting a gif in the chat that was the wrong one so yeah got it good for me scrolling past it real quick so the profanity didn't show up <laughs> if you didn't know this we do stream live at geeks.live every monday at 8 45 p.m eastern time we got a live house band uh we we got a chat room where you can put gifts in and occasionally the wrong gif apparently uh, you caught me right as i was putting the gif in and i went uh-oh there's profanity so i'm trying to clear it off screen well thank you thank you very much sp for this uh i appreciate you always sharing the space stuff i can't believe it's been a year it's been a year al already wow not quite a year. It was May of 2019, the last time I did it. And remember that I was taking some time off from the show to do some stuff that didn't entirely pan out. And I just was missing the Space Symposium. So finally had a chance to get back to it. And uh, next time, by the way, I'm not entirely sure because I ran into an issue with multiple backups for this file that I was working on. But it looks like we'll be talking about Venera 7, which is two more in advance of the Venera 4 3, you know, two missions in between. And it was the first spacecraft to land on another planet. Guess which planet we're talking about? 
MU69. That's where life began. <laughs> but it's not... A, uh, yeah, that works. Is it Pluto? It's Venus, guys. Venus. Oh, oh. It's Venus. So when do we get to the razor talk? Because I'm, I, I always assumed that they found the Venus razors in space. That's why they're named Venus. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Somebody does. And I also know there's a gift, too, for the razors as well. <gasps> well, thank you very much, SP, for that. I do sincerely appreciate that. Uh, before we go, uh, just take a moment to catch everybody up on what we're all up to, what we're all doing. I'll actually kick it off this time. Uh, SP and I do the Better Podcasting podcast. We like to do that. And we did a little bit of a change to it after some hard thinking over Christmas and discussions. And uh, if you didn't know this, we talk about podcasting stuff and it was on a weekly basis. Well, we still do now, but we're changing the actual episode releases to biweekly. So every other week and we stream that live and it's now moved to Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. It used to be on Wednesdays. But what we do is one week we do a regular episode. The next we just do a little informal live chat. And uh, for now, it's just SBNI. But you never know who we might have on in the future for that live chat. We got to kind of get the rhythm, figure it out uh, before we we bark up that tree. But if you haven't uh, checked that out or you've been wondering why Better Podcasting has been not coming out weekly, that's why we made a change. So it's every other week. And it's kind of fun just to have a little informal chat. Uh, we had our uh, most recent one a week ago, and that was that was fun to just have some questions asked, answer them, and have SP just have more time to tell me why I'm such a terrible podcaster. He, he about twenty minutes out of that that forty five minute broadcast was him doing that. We've gone over this. Do we really need forty five minutes to say how bad of a podcaster you are? I mean. It's pretty obvious within the first few minutes. I mean, it seems excessive, but you were the one that said, no, we have to go through everything point by point. So it ends up being 45 minutes. Fair. I've got to condense down to a 10 minute stump speech at this point. <laughs> Chris, what have you been up to? I feel like, by the way, I'm ripping off an ATGN segment here. I, I do. <laughs> it's okay. We probably ripped it off from someone to begin with also. Um <laughs> What I've been getting into, I'm down to just two podcasts right now, guys. So I'm kind of figuring out where I want to go next. That being said, however, I've been sitting on some domain names for a while. So if you have a pod, if you want to do a podcast about the Orville or Star Wars, I will happily just transfer over a couple domain names to folks. I've got OrvilleCast.com and I think Visions of the Force that where I had plucked for both for different possible projects. I'm not going to do them. I don't want to delve into the Star Wars fandom because it sucks right now. <laughs> and I'm glad people can do it right now. I just, that's not something I want to be into. And I don't know that I want to do more TV based podcasting. I enjoyed the Starling Tribune, but I've mentioned before when it came to the walking dead and even to arrow to a lesser extent, it became a chore to have to watch sometimes. And I don't want to do that for shows I like. So if you guys, anyone listening to this wants to pick up a show on those things, I will gladly just transfer over the domain names so that somebody can do something with them instead of my just, sitting on them for a while. That is definitely a hard thing to do. Um, pow keep continuing powering through TV shows when you're doing a podcast as well, because not only do you not have the ability to do some tactics that you might usually for a show that you're not feeling like stack them up and things like that, but you also have to revisit it and talk about it. It's, it's tough. And yeah, the walking dead, not fun. I just need to clean out some of those things. I've had good idea fairy projects. I might want to touch on at some point in time. I, I know those are two project two or two franchises that while I might enjoy at first, I don't think would be sustainable for me long-term. So, Hey, if it's something you guys want, just hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. I'll happily transfer them so that someone gets some use out of them. And SP, is there anything that you would like to talk about? Yeah, there is Steven, the big announcement that you and I were talking about before. So, since the Starling Tribune ended, I was contacted by the CW and they had been missing the Starling Tribune so much. They threw tons of money at me and wanted me to co-host a show with David Ramsey, Speedweed and James Bamford. So we're going to go ahead and do that starting in a couple weeks here. And it's going to be fun. We're going to revisit Starling Tribune uh, from the creator's side of things. 
Nice. Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) I I would love to say that that's real, but I I feel like it's not. You don't know. Prove it. (laughs) Prove it. If those guys want a podcast with me, uh, Chris and and Michelle, we will be great to have a panel with them. But no, no, Starling Tribune is done. But it has allowed me to open up my atmosphere uh, aperture and do a bunch of different things, uh, doing some extra content for better podcasting, revamping the Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, which is in sorely been in need for a while it's going to be evolving throughout this year and at the end of the year it will look uh completely different the content will be the same but it'll look and sound completely different so we're looking forward to uh updating that as well as creating additional content for better podcasting and as far as gonna geek you know never know where the show is going to go i mean one week we're talking about venus the next week we're on a fake rock band stage so you know (laughs) Well, only Steven. The rest of us weren't good enough at playing music. Yeah. The rest of us aren't cloned as much either. So on that note, then, for episode 231 of the OfficialGunnaGeek.com show, I'm Steven John Drew saying I got my harmonica all ready for the outro. I better go do that. I go? I'll go. Oh, dear God. He's got more instruments. I got a triangle somewhere around here. I can start playing that too. Hey, see you guys next week. Bye. I gotta go. I seriously, I gotta go. I gotta go. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official gunageek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.